certainly appreciate um, the message that's come before us. There is a lot to be said about the concepts of life and death. Um, I'm, when I think of it, I'm often reminded at that moment that uh, that Jesus carried a couple of his disciples into that room where Jairus's daughter uh, was dead. Right? And they told him that when he got there. They said, uh, "He told them, you know, why why are you weeping? She's simply asleep." And they laughed him to scorn because they knew they knew that she was no longer breathing. That her heart was no longer pumping. She was dead. He took her mother and her father, and he took a couple of his disciples up to that room uh, with him. And he began to he began to walk over to her bed. And I I can't help but wonder. I, I try to I can't help but put myself in the place of one of those disciples in their shoes, and ask myself, what would I have been thinking at this point? And I, and I can't help but think that I would have been thinking, what, what am I doing here? What, what reason? Why did we come up to this room? What purpose do we have here? Of course, we know that Jesus walked over to that young lady's bed and uh, basically just said to her, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And she immediately came to herself, so to speak. It was as though she was just taking a nap. And he spoke to her and woke her up. That's what death is to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's, it's just, they're asleep. It's not that big a deal. Uh, for us, it's a big deal. It's kind of final. It's kind of permanent, as Brother Victor was pointing out. But for the Lord, it's just, if he can go over and nudge the person, he can wake them up. Doesn't matter. And then he turned to those that were in the room with him, and he says, give her something to eat. Well, that's why they were there. <coughs> They weren't there to help in the, in the life-giving aspect. They were there to help in the life-sustaining aspect once she was alive. And that's the difference between the, the spiritual call of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the gospel call. The gospel is not meant to give life, but rather to sustain it, to bring it to life, to show what it is. So I, I find that story really, really interesting. Um, if you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We've got about 30 minutes. We're going to make this really, really quick and, and, and hopefully make this um, as clear as we possibly can. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start reading in about verse uh, 3 where it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. And he's talking to them about his feelings to some extent. And his, but in particular, not his emotional feelings, but his spiritual inclinations toward these people. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, don't forget where the Apostle Paul is writing this from. He's on, he's where? Anybody remember? He's in a Roman prison. This is the church at Philippi's flipping letter. His, he was in a Roman prison when he wrote this. So he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So all the Apostle Paul had to do at this point was to think, write, sing, pray. He didn't have a whole lot else to do. 
So he thought about these people often. These were the people that communicated to his needs. He'll tell them that at some point. They communicated to his needs on quite a regular basis. When all, a, lot, a lot of the other folks in the world had turned their back upon the Apostle Paul because he was a prisoner in Rome and he become a burden to them, the church at Philippi never turned their back upon him. So I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I think that's sweet. I don't know how else to put it. It's just special. He says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. I am happy to pray for you, he says. You know, there's some people I rejoice to pray for. And there are other people I pray for begrudgingly. Let's be honest, right? We're instructed to pray for everybody everywhere. We're instructed to pray for the leaders in the highest positions of our country all the way down to the people in our local church. We're instructed to pray for those that we don't like. We're instructed to pray for our enemies. We're instructed to love our enemies. We're instructed to pray for everyone everywhere at all times. And some people I really want to pray for and I enjoy praying for. And some people I pray for because I have to. Brother Dan Strickland, who has a connection to this church, used to tell me, he says, you know, Brother Marty, the Bible tells me I must love everybody. And he said, some people I love up real close. And he said, some people I love at arm's length. He said, because the Bible doesn't tell me I have to like everybody. I have to love them. Here's a point. It's a really good point, by the way. It's a really good point. So he says to the church of Philippi, he says, always in every prayer of mine with you making requests with joy, he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And now we get to the verse I wanted to get to where he says, being confident, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Then he says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, meet there being suitable. I'm not having a meeting. He's saying it's meet for me. It is suitable for me. That's what the word meet means in this particular case. He says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, it's suitable for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. You see what the Apostle Paul's doing here? He's making them part of his ministry. Do you ever wonder why TV evangelists, these people that get on the... And I'm not talking about people who are sincere in their preaching. I'm talking about those people who get on TV and literally um, uh, steal from God's people. You know, this used to be really common when I was a teenager. I used to turn the TV on once in a while and watch some of these guys just for the entertainment value. And it was hilarious. In my mind, it was hilarious the things they were doing that they could get away with and, and convincing people to send them money. And I used to, I thought that had kind of died out, to be honest with you. But there's now on, on major TV, if you'll turn your TV on at night, there's now another guy out there that's selling this, uh, he calls it miracle water. Have y'all seen this guy? And he's got all these people bearing testimony. Yeah, I ordered some of your miracle water, and this happened, and that happened. and Whoa, it's a little packet of miracle water. I don't know what you're supposed to do to it when you get it. I don't know if you're supposed to drink it. 
supposed to sprinkle it over your head? I haven't, I haven't ordered it to read the instructions. Right? I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of this, but this is ridiculous. And, and as a minister of the gospel, I feel like that as, as the pastor of this local congregation, I need to tell you this. This is ridiculous. This is not the kind of things we should fall into. This is not the kind of things that we should jump on. This is nuts. It, it, is, it, is, it is people fleecing the flock of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to get rich. You ask yourself if you've got common sense and you watch these things and you go, wow, that's just amazing. I'm, you know, but, but I have to remind myself that this guy has earned enough money doing this to pay for a television ad on a national network. I'm not talking about WeTV. I'm talking ABC. NBC, CBS, I'm talking major Fox. I'm talking major national networks now. If you turn it on at night, when the rates are the lowest. But, but you know what? Low rates on a national network is still too much for me. I mean, you won't find Dallas church ads on there. Right? There's a reason. We can't afford it. But he can pay for it. So I start asking myself, why? how in the world are these people so successful at doing that? I'll tell you how. They've done something that we as primitive Baptists have failed to do. They, rec- they recognize this fact, that the, the membership of the house of the Lord, God's people, are born when they're born again, are born with an innate desire to be a part of something greater than themselves, to be a part of a ministry. Now, if you've ever watched these guys, you'll know that they'll, they'll, they'll ask you for a donation, and at various levels, you become a member of something. And they make you, by, by financial connection, they make you a part of their ministry. This, this is not foreign to Scripture. They're using some truth in what they're saying because this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. None of us have a problem with that. He has them in his heart. Inasmuch as both now, uh-oh, they're in his bonds. Remember, he's in a Roman prison right now. In his bonds. And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he says, ye are all partakers of my Grace, what's he saying? He's saying you're all participants in my ministry. Why? Because you have communicated to my need, both physically and spiritually and emotionally. You have contributed to me by sending things that I need, but you've also prayed for me, and you've been there for me, and you continue to fellowship with me, and you continue to be my friend. You've supported me. That's interesting. So that's something I just want you to keep in the back of your mind. That as members of the Dallas church, you are part and parcel and part of the ministry of this church. No matter who the pastor might be, no matter who's preaching the gospel from this congregation, even if we end up with three elders in this church at some point, you are still part and parcel of that ministry because you support it, you pray for it, you communicate to it. And and I I don't think we, we emphasize that enough, right? But I want to go back to verse 6. Apostle Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you 
will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Anybody have any idea when that work was begun? Regeneration. When does God begin a work in me? Actually in me. It's at the moment that he calls and speaks to me and borns me again out of darkness into life. Right? Calls me from death to life. This is what Brother Victor was just talking about a few minutes ago, that God makes the dead alive. And, and when he does that in a spiritual way, when he takes the spiritually dead and makes them alive, we call that regeneration or being born again or being quickened. These are all synonyms for the same concept. Or being washed by the the regeneration, being saved in regeneration. Some people call it being saved. I don't have a problem with that terminology because the Bible uses it. I used to have a problem when somebody says, well, I was saved when I was 12. And once I realized that what they're saying is that's the first time I really recognized Jesus, it may be that what we could determine here is that what they're saying is, is in reality, whether they understand it or not, is that's the first time I really knew that I was born again. And the Bible says that being born again is being saved by the washing of regeneration. Nothing wrong with that terminology at all. we got to quit throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There's nothing wrong with biblical terminology. We may not always understand it and we may not always like it, but there's nothing wrong with it. Otherwise, we need to change our Bible. And people are doing that. We've been pretty hardcore to not do that, right? So if we're going to be hardcore about not doing that, we at least need to accept the language of the book that's in front of us. Reasonable? I think that's reasonable. So he says, He that hath begun a good work in you shall perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You may got a, a clue what the day of Jesus Christ is in this context. It's the second coming, the resurrection. I heard that back there too. It's the, it's the physical resurrection. It's the end of time. It's when God sits in heaven and says, I'm done, I'm finished, time will be no more, and Jesus comes back with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God will sound. Right? And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and they which are alive and remain, we caught up with them, and so shall they meet him in the air, and so shall they ever be with the Lord. Right? We all understand that. Pretty, pretty straightforward. So the, the day of Jesus Christ that's under consideration here is the second coming. God has started a work in you, and he says he will perform it until Jesus returns. We're dealing with a very significant theological concept. And we've talked about it last week. We talked about it in terms of the TULIP acronym. Remember, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, which is what we talked about last week, and now we're down to the P in the tulip, and traditionally it's called perseverance of the saints. Okay, so let's let's talk about that a minute. And I'm actually going to word it a little different way, but perseverance and or preservation. Of the saints. Okay? So here's two words. Perseverance, preservation. They both begin with the letter P. They're both fairly long words. They've got a lot of syllables in them. Do they mean the same thing? Not today. The answer is it depends. She <laughs> love that? She love good, solid, yeah, strong, direct answers to questions? 
Do those two words mean the same thing? And the answer is maybe. Okay. The problem is, is that in the modern context of the use of the English, English language, we have, we have segregated these two words so that they mean something different from one another, or at least in the way we use them. We use the word persevere to imply that the individual that is persevering is active in controlling the outcome. Okay? So if I say, wow, you know, I really, that guy's a, that guy's something else. He, you know, he's, he's a strong person, and, and he really perseveres in what he's doing. He's persistent, right? He labors hard, he works, and, and in spite of troubles and trials and difficulties, in spite of, in spite of the, he, he perseveres through the hard times. What I mean by that is he is active in controlling the outcome. This is a characteristic we look for in people we hire for certain jobs, isn't it? We want people that when they run up against roadblocks, don't just throw up their hands, sit down, and go, well, I'm done. I used to have a technician that worked for me at one time in a chemical lab that was the best technician I ever had. If you gave him a set of instructions to follow, he would follow them to a T. He would never ask a question. He would do it exactly the way you told him to do it. I never had to worry that he had deviated in any way. The only problem was if something happened along the way, that was different or prevented him from going to the next step, he would literally turn off the heat, turn off the experiment, cut down the power, disassemble everything, and stop. Because he didn't know what to do. And it wasn't so much that he didn't have the knowledge to be able to make an educated decision on what to do next and maybe just choose a path and go. He just wouldn't. It wasn't in his nature. He would just, I would rather him have said, you know what, I can't do what he said, so I'm going to do this. And then explain to me later why he did it, and maybe I would have learned something from what he did. But the way he did things, I never learned anything beyond that point because he just stopped. That's not a characteristic we generally look for in people that we want to work for us. We don't, we don't want them. To, now, sometimes it's wise not to continue. You know, there's safety reasons and, and all that kind of things, but we look for people that persevere. The word preserve or preservation is often something that we now talk about somebody else acting on something that's being preserved. So that the object being preserved is inactive in the process. For instance, we use this term a lot of times now in the, in the kitchen of people who raise vegetables and fruits and everything. They're going to preserve things, whether they're going to do it by canning or freezing or salt curing, whatever the case may be, they're going to act on something so that it is preserved down the road. As a result of this this modern use of this language, a controversy has been set up amongst our people. Because some people say, well, to say that we believe in the perseverance of the saints is to say that we mean that, that the individual himself must act in faith in order to make it to heaven. That once they're born again, they, if they are to persevere, 
then it's up to them to continue to act in faith. Otherwise, they don't go to heaven. And there are people who believe that. There are people who actually believe that. Yes. That, that, that philosophy around, around perseverance in saints. There, there are people who believe that it's up to the individual. And if they don't persevere in the faith, they, they will actually say that essentially, uh, if you look at uh, a person's life as a chart of, of righteousness on this scale versus time on this scale, that this point here is the point of regeneration. And they'll say that the, the person who's truly been born again, their, their level of righteousness in life, might, I mean, they'll have their moments when they slide backwards, but at death they'll be at the highest point they've ever been. They call this progressive sanctification. They'll say this is, this is the pattern of life of a typical individual. That's just not true. And the Bible talks about King Saul of the Old Testament and says that he was a man with a changed heart. I have no doubts, and I'm not one to judge who is and who is not a child of God most of the time, but when the Bible is clear, I don't think I have to judge. I think I can just accept it. And it says that King Saul was a man with a changed heart, and it says that David said he wouldn't even touch King Saul because uh, he wouldn't touch uh, the anointed of God. So I'm pretty sure King Saul of the Old Testament was a child of grace. But yet he died in a suicidal moment as a crazed maniac who was trying to take the life of David. It certainly wasn't the highest point of righteousness in his life. Now, I don't mean to say that to make fun or poke poke fun at anybody else. I'm just saying I think there's too many examples in Scripture where this just is not true. It isn't true. So I don't like the concept of progressive sanctification. And I certainly don't believe that individuals who do not persevere in faithful works are proving that they were never born again. I don't don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. Matter of fact, I can point out others in Scripture. Somebody asked me this one time when I had this discussion with them when I said, oh, so you're saying you believe that a, a person has to, in order for a person to be be born again, not in order for them to be born again, but if they are born again, that they will hear the gospel and they will receive it and they will acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this person looked at me and said, well, show me one person in the Bible who didn't. And I said, I can show you many. And I immediately went to the book of Romans and pointed out to them that the Jews of that day, the Bible says they were counted enemies of the gospel for our sake the sake of the Gentile. But they were beloved of God for election's sake. Right? They still belonged to God. So there were hundreds, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Jews in that day who did not accept, receive, and acknowledge the gospel of Jesus Christ, did not acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. Matter of fact, continued into, in a faith that denied the very presence of the Messiah Deny Jesus, who were still counted as children of grace. And some say, well, you don't know that they didn't accept later. You're right, I don't, but you don't know that they did. So whether they did or didn't is apparently irrelevant to their eternity. Okay? So here's the problem. These terms have... have have been adopted to be used this way in this day and time 
that we believe that persevere implies that a person must be active. Preservation implies that a, the person is inactive. And the reality is, though that's generally true in the way we use them now, it's not always been true in the English language. So if you go and look at most primitive Baptist articles of faith, not ours, because we're a fairly young church. Matter of fact, this church chose to ignore both of those terms and not even mention them. But when I started pastoring the church in Brunswick, Georgia, our Articles of Faith modeled that of most all Articles of Faith in the world where it said that we believe that all of God's children will persevere in grace. Now that seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Because we believe that grace can't be mingled with works, and yet we've just said the word persevere in modern language implies that the individual is active. The problem is that the word persevere over time has altered in meaning, and therefore you have to understand that at one point in its use, it was very similar to the word preserved. So don't just automatically assume when you see the word persevere that the people who wrote that must have been heretics. They are not. They may just be using a different definition than you are. Matter of fact, I would venture that 80 to 90% of the primitive Baptist churches in America had persevere in their articles of faith at one time if they haven't changed them now. You say, Brother Marty, should we be changing our articles of faith to make it more clear? Well, that's a different question. And quite frankly, I don't think it matters. It depends on your approach. If you think that articles of faith are primarily to be used as an evangelical method, then maybe it makes sense that you're clear in today's modern language what you mean. But if articles of faith are used as they were originally intended, and that is to compare from one church to another to see if we have a common faith that we might fellowship over, then maybe it's not as important that we update the language all the time. But if we're going to update the language of our articles of faith every time the English language changes, should we not then also update our Bibles? Or should we just try to learn the definitions of these words? I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good answer. But I want to talk about this as a doctrine. What does this mean, brother? And I'm going to tell you what I think it means. I think it means exactly what, what Paul just said. That God, who had begun a good work in you, would perform it until the end. Let me ask you something. Who is active in that particular process? God. Doesn't say anything about me persevering. It says everything about God performing a work in me and then performing it continually until the end. Did you realize that it takes the same life-giving power that translated you from death to life to keep you until Jesus returns? It's the same power. It's the same power. So let's look at some other verses that, uh, that speak to this particular uh, situation. Let's go back to probably by far the most common uh, use. Let's go back to the book of Romans for just a second. Uh, we're going to go back to Romans chapter 8 uh, and let's look at just how complete the Bible lays this out. There's a lot of people who do not believe that once you're a child of grace that you're always a child of grace. There's a lot of people who don't accept that that uh, that doctrine. There's a lot of people who believe that you can lose your salvation. There's a lot of people who believe that you have to regain your salvation through repentance and faith every time you lose it. And, and there's some people who believe you lose it every time you sin. Some people believe it takes a little bit more than that. But whatever the case may be, they believe that there's a chance you could lose it 
and then gain it back. Matter of fact, when I was a young boy, I remember my father receiving a phone call from somebody who worked in our school system. And the person who worked in our school system had a son who was a pretty good athlete at the time, and he was in high school, and he'd gotten in a car and apparently had made a, a pretty serious mistake. He'd gotten drunk, he got in a car and was driving, he had a single car accident, and he died. 17 years old, I think, at the time. And his mother, uh, and, and who attended a church of a different order, different faith than us, his mother had called my father up and was asking my dad, a primitive Baptist preacher, if he would be willing to preach this young man's funeral. And my dad didn't think real quick, because the young man was a member of this other church too. My dad didn't think, he wasn't trying, he wasn't trying to hurt this person's feelings, but it just happened so fast in his head it came out. You ever have those moments where things come out your mouth and you wish you could pull back, you know? Yeah, yeah, we all have that problem, I think. And, and you know, I remember listening to my, this phone call when my dad said, well, why are you calling me? Why not his pastor? And the lady said, because I know what his pastor will say. Because he had died in a sin. He was drunk and he had never had the opportunity to repent. His pastor was going to say that he was destined for hell. And my dad told this lady on the phone, I heard this with my own ears. I heard him say these words, and I, I, this I'll never forget. I'll always be able to quote it. He said, any faith that's not good enough to die by is not good enough to live by. I thought, wow. That's pretty powerful. That's not scripture, but that's pretty powerful. Certainly something to think about and consider. If you're not willing to stand by your faith in death, then why would you stand by it in life? Right? So I believe this to be true. I believe that every child of grace, once they've been born of the Spirit of God, will always be a child. Matter of fact, that's the way our articles of faith here at Dallas word it. It actually says that. It says, once a child, you will always be a child. You can go look it up. It's the same article I read last week. I don't remember what number it is. It's hanging out there in the foyer. That every child of God, every elect child of God, will always be a child of God. That's what it says. You know, that makes perfect sense because once a person is born into a family, they're always part of that family. No matter what they do, no matter how badly they might behave, you cannot extract them from your family. You can try. You can ignore them. You can ride them out of the will. You can pretend they don't exist, but your DNA and your blood still pumps through their bodies, and they are still part of your family no matter what you do. You can't change that. Children don't get to choose their fathers and mothers, and they don't get to change them on a whim, right? It just doesn't work that way. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8 a minute. Let's just look at how sure this really is. Remember last week we read in here where it says, uh, when we were talking about this, the, or a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about the calling, it says, and we know that all good things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. That's verse 28. Verse 29 says, because for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And he says, what shall we say to these things. If God's doing all the work here, 
If God predestined, if God foreknew, if God called, if God justified, if God glorified, and if God did that for the same exact people, because he says it all along, for whom he did foreknow, them he also predestinated. Whom he predestinated, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. He, it was the exact same group of people at all five steps in that process, right? Without the loss of one. And he says, if that be the case, if God's doing all the work, he asks this question. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's a good question. He says, he that spared not his own son for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he's willing to give his son, what else would he not give? Think about that. If God is willing to give his son for you, what would he withhold from you? Nothing. Just how strongly do you believe in God? How strongly do you believe that he'll provide? I'm not up here to tell you that you should believe Him for a new car or believe Him for a new house or believe Him for a new job. But I am telling you that you should have faith that God will provide. You need to believe Him and believe in Him for your provision. I mean, good gracious, He gave you His Son. What do you think He would withhold from you? Isn't that incredible? He allowed his only begotten son to be brutalized on the cross, to be brutalized leading up to the cross, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to be scarred, to be cut, to be, to be bashed around. To be nailed to a cross. He allowed them to force a spear into his eye. He allowed his son to give up his life on the cross for you. What else would he withhold? I mean, is there anything that he would withhold if God be for us? I mean, come on. Who, who could be against us? He didn't spare his own son. He says, verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. We're told in the book of the Revelation that, that Satan is there today trying to accuse God's people. But the Bible says in the book of the Revelation that the accuser of the brethren is cast down. You see, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody can. Not even Satan himself can charge us anymore. Why? Because we're not, we're not righteous based on what we've done. We're not righteous based on a decision we've made. We're not righteous because we're persevering in some form of faithful works. We're righteous because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And who can lay anything to that charge? Nobody. Nobody can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. He says, it is God that justifieth. Who, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. I mean, come on, if you're going to try to lay something to the charge of God's elect, what courtroom are you going in anyway? God's the judge. And God's the one that has justified us. 
He said, it's Christ that died, yea, rather than is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Who, here comes the pertinent question for the day, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? When we talk about the P in the tulip doctrine, what we're talking about is the fact that there is no way that a child of grace can be extricated, separated from the love of God. That once born again, they will always be a child. That if you're a child of God today, you'll be one tomorrow, you'll be one next week, you'll be one the week after that, you'll be one up until you die. And even beyond that, God will carry you to his kingdom. You will always be his. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Right? My Father which giveth them me is greater than all. No man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Right? <clears throat> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hmm. Well, let's see. Shall tribulation? No. What is tribulation? Trouble. Difficulty. Trial, tribulation, tribulation of the heart. Have you ever known anybody that was so troubled to the heart that they, they even might have went so far as to take in their own life? I mean, I don't know how much more troubled you can get than that. You know what? I've preached the funeral of suicide victims. I'll call them victims. That's hard. I've been present when people got the news that a child had committed suicide. That was unbelievable. I can't imagine the trouble in a heart that would cause somebody to go to that point. But it is, it is a tribulation. But will that tribulation separate a child of grace from God, from the love of Christ? No. Or distress? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword. It's not trouble, not distress, not hunger, not persecution from the outside, not even war. The sword, or peril. He says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, in all these things, what shall separate us from love of God? Nothing. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then the Apostle Paul says this, for I am persuaded. You might know what the word persuaded means. Convinced. He told the, told the church at Philippi that he was confident of this very thing. 
You know, there's not much difference in the definition of those two words. In this case, he says he's persuaded. Not much difference. You could say he's confident if you want. He is persuaded. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth and just so we're clear, nor any other creature, which by the way, includes yourself. Think about that. Includes yourself. Includes yourself. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're out of time. And I'm going to give you a few minutes. I want you to name something for me. i got a question for you. I want you to name something for me that's not on that list. Take your time. I want you to pick something that wasn't before or won't will, will be after. Can't be in either, either past or future categories. And, and it can't be any other creature. Think about that a minute. It can't be above us or below us because it can't be of depth or height. So think about it. You know. Got it yet? Me neither. I don't know anything that's not on that list. I can't imagine anything that wouldn't fit on that list. There is nothing that fits on that list. That's why God gave us that list. It is to point out to us that once we're in his family, we are unchangeably connected to him. You are unchangeably connected to God. You you are a part of the family of the divine. And, And it can't be undone. You can't be extricated out of that situation. You can't be separated from the love of Christ. Think about it for a minute logically. Forget what I just said in Scripture. Hang on to it because Scripture is more important than my logic. But think about it for a minute logically. He says, I will give unto them eternal life. If you could lose that life, just how eternal is it? If that life can end, is it really eternal? But Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. But yet, if I lose it, is it really eternal? No. It's it's certainly not. I mean, think about that for a moment. It doesn't make sense. God says in the book of Colossians, you want another scripture that will give you some idea of just how secure our life is? It says that our life is hid with Christ in God. Now, if God's hid it, first of all, if God has hid your life, who do you think is going to find it? I mean, shoot, I've got to the point where I can hide Easter eggs and then go hunt them myself. <laughs> Just give me a couple of days. You know? It's amazing how short my memory's gotten. If God's hid it, I don't think I'm going to find it. But let's assume for the moment that I figured out God's secret code and I can find that life that He's hid. When I get there, guess who's defending it? My life is hid with Christ in God. I got to go to war with Jesus Himself. Because that's where it's at. It's hid with Christ in God. 
I mean, how much more secure can we imagine our life being? Our life is as secure as it could ever be. And I need to shut up because I think I've made the point. I think I've made the point scripturally that we are, we are secure. So I don't care whether you use the term preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints as long as you understand that it's not my power or your power that is keeping us safe in Christ. And it's not dependent upon external evidence that I might witness, that I might determine that one is a child of grace or not. It's what God is doing on the inside that matters. We're we're not persevering in faith. We are persevering in grace. Right? That sounds like an oxymoron because of the way we think about it. But if you, if you let grace be the primary term there and define perseverance consistent with grace, then you define it in such a way that it doesn't include our works, right? We're being preserved in Christ. As long as you understand it that way, I don't care which words you use. Most of the confessions of old are going to use the term persevere because that's the way they understood the language of that time. Don't throw out the language of our forefathers simply because you don't like it. Now, do do these words appear in Scripture? Yes, they do. And they appear to be more consistent with the modern vernacular, to be honest with you. Uh, Ephesians 6.18 is the only appearance of the word persevere or perseverance in any way. It actually talks about perseverance in prayer. And what it's implying is that we should strive to persevere in prayer. So I get it. There are better terms sometimes that are more biblical. Maybe we should stick to the biblical language of preserved being more in line with what Christ is doing in us. But don't throw our forefathers out simply because they used a term that made sense to them. That's all I'm trying to say. Just understand that that the reality is that once a child of God, once born into the family... You're always in the family. And may God bless us to rejoice in that.